Good morning, everyone. Time to begin a worship service this morning. It's good to see all the chattering and, and the smiles and the beautiful Sunday morning God has blessed us with. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're certainly glad to have you. Glad you're able to be with, out with us. And uh, we want to keep those uh, in mind who aren't able to... Uh, to be here this morning, pray for them, and and pray for those uh, who are able to be here but just made a choice not to be. Beautiful morning, beautiful day. Got some announcements to go over. John Klein had knee replacement uh, this past week. It was on Tuesday, and and he's at home, and and he's doing he's doing well and recovering. Rosemary Calicoat. This is the sister to Virginia Garlic and Margaret Wilgus. Uh, she has been moved to Heritage Center for rehab. Also, let's continue to uh, pray for Mary Alice Cooper. Keep her in your prayers. She remains in St. Mary's. Also, prayers for Fern Liston, who has contracted COVID. Fern is the uh, sister-in-law of Sherry Ward. And She's in a hospital in Columbus, so we want to pray for her. Remember to keep Kristen and Rusty in our prayers as, as they continue their chemo treatments and uh, pray for them and pray for everyone uh, who is uh, battling diseases, whatever it may be. Also, we extend our sympathy to uh, Danielle Dunphy at the passing of her grandfather, John Deere, on Thursday night need to keep uh, Danielle and, and uh, her family in our prayers. And let's remember those who have recently lost loved ones. We've had uh, several pass away in the last two or three weeks, and uh, this being uh, Easter and uh, not being with their families, it's, I know it's hard on those families, and let's uh, keep those families in our prayers. Be sure to check your bulletin and, and for updates and everything. Uh, see what you can do to uh, be a part of helping someone who, who is hurting. Also this morning, on, on a good note, uh, uh, Robin Ziegler has placed membership here uh, and uh, with a desire to serve here with the, with the Rome Church of Christ. And Robin, is stand, would you stand up, please, and let everybody see Robin and, and uh, welcome her here after, after service. I asked her if she wanted me to just have her raise her hand or stand up, and she said, well, you can just, uh, I forget how she put it, just uh, humiliate me or something anyway. I wanted whatever I chose, so I thought, well, we'll just make her stand up. But, but we're glad to have you here. I'd like to read uh, from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8 this morning. Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, 
whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Bow with me as we go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are truly thankful for this uh, beautiful morning that you've given us. Father, we're thankful for all the blessings that we have. We realize that all good things come from you. We're thankful for this congregation, Lord, that we can gather here together. We pray that you'll continue to be with us and bless us. And Father, we pray that everything that we do will be according to your will. And Father, we, we pray for Chris this morning as he brings us another lesson. We pray, Father, that you will help us to, uh, to be good listeners and help us to be good doers. And Father, we pray that as we reach out to this community and, and, and other things that, that, that we are involved in, that uh, it will glorify you, Lord. We are mindful of those uh, who have been mentioned here this morning. We pray, Father, that, that you will bless them. And, and, and uh, we pray for uh, Danielle, that you'll comfort her and her family at the passing of her grandfather. Pray, Father, that you'll bless them in and, and, uh, and only a way that you can. Father, we pray for our country. We pray that uh, you will bless our country. And we pray, Father, that our leaders uh, will look to you for decisions. And, and Father, we just ask that you'll uh, just continue to bless this nation. And Father, we... Uh, just ask now that you'll be with us as, as we enter into this service. Uh, we pray, Father, that we will uh, just think about uh, what Chris has to say and that we can forget about the, the things going on around us, Father, and, and just, just listen to your word. We thank you for your son. Father, we thank you that uh, he was willing to, uh, to die on the cross, but we're so thankful, Father, for that resurrection and, and uh, we know, Lord, that, uh, that the world around today just, has chosen today to, to be a special day, uh, uh, Father. But, uh, but we realize that, that Jesus Christ is risen, and, and Father, that's the main thing, that he's risen, that he is alive, and, and uh, that, uh, that we can worship him. And we're thankful that he died for us. Be with us. Forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 532. 532. Praise him, praise him. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Next hymn this morning, number 300. Hymn number 300, I will sing of my Redeemer. We'll sing the first three verses, and after that, Brother Brian Ward will have our scripture reading and prayer.
Scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Mark 8, 1 through 3. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on their way, for some of them have come from afar. Would you bow with me, please? Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day, Father, and we're thankful for this opportunity we have here to gather on this Easter Sunday to worship you. Father, we're thankful for all the gifts you've given us, all the opportunities to come here in this this building. Father, we pray that you'd be with this service, be with those that are leading it, help them to to relay the message to the crowd, Father. Father, we pray that uh, you'd be with us, bless us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We can do so in a in a mindful manner. Father, we just thank you for everything you do for us, and especially we want to thank you for sending Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Next time this morning, 621, 10,000 angels.
We're gathered here this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of the great sacrifice that he gave for us. I want to speak a little bit about that this morning. If you open your Bibles to the first, first Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 3, 1 through 4 rather, it reads like this. Now I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, three, on the third day, according to the scriptures. We've talked an awful lot recently about types and antitypes. Well, there's types that we've already studied about Jesus' death, his sacrifice. If you go back and look at uh, Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice that Abraham was ready to make, Abraham was a type of God in that story, and Isaac was the type of Christ in that story. 
if you go back and you look at Jonah in the belly of the whale or the belly of the great fish, three days, Jesus himself says that Jonah was in the belly and he would be in the earth the same way, a type and an antitype. How about types of the resurrection? We kind of overlook that one because it's another one of those subjects that we're a little leery of sometimes. Sometimes even to the point of disbelief. And our world is in that state. They don't believe he rose. We believe he did when without that belief, we don't have any hope at all. And as Paul said, we are the most wretched of all people. But we do believe. I want to show, show you something. I think that God's trying to tell us something. He's trying to show us something. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection, sometimes weekly, in many ways. But I feel that we have a lot of questions about it. And if we just stop and think, I think that there are several examples that can help us in that regard. We measure time in hours, minutes, days, weeks, etc. Each hour passes and is gone and a new one begins. Each minute passes and is gone and a new one begins. Each one of these is a experience, a different experience, but then again it's the same in many ways. Each day ends in darkness, and a new one comes with the dawn. We live each week, breaking it into seven days, and then that week is over, and we start another one on the first day of the week. Weeks and months pass, and soon as year has come and gone, we hopefully will start a new one, not really understanding what it might hold. But we hope that it is similar to the last and different than the last. We see new growth in this time of the year. We see seasons. We see spring and new flowers and new greenery all around. New life, animal babies, all over the place. We see new things. Some of the old things still remained though, didn't they? The trees, though they went dormant, they have rejuvenated and now they're budding out and blossoming out and leaving out and beginning to be gorgeous. I think God's trying to show us something.
day passes, a new day begins, a week passes, a new one begins. A month passes, and a new one comes. A year passes, and a new one arrives. God's trying to tell us something. You can trust in him. His son paid the sacrifice for us. But his son also is the example of the resurrection, of the, of the overcoming of death and its power. And we celebrate that today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, for his life and death, for the suffering, the pain, the anguish, the humiliation that he underwent as he hung on the cross. Father, we thank you that he sacrificed his body for us. Please bless us as we partake of this bread that represents his body. Bring our minds back to the cross and back to his pain and his suffering. In his name we pray. Amen. you will please bow again with me father in heaven we thank you for the blood of Jesus the blood that washes away our sin the blood that saves us the blood that makes us a child of yours father we can't appreciate that enough we don't understand and know all of the wonderful things that you've done for us through his sacrifice. As we partake of this cup, Father, help us to remember his shed blood and what that has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen. concludes our communion service but we still have an obligation as a congregation to promote the work that is going on here to spread the word and to do good works in the community it is our responsibility as members of this church to uh, make sure that those things happen you have your contribution with you as we exit the auditorium after the service. There are two yellow receptacles in the back. Please drop your contribution in there as you leave. And let's ask a blessing upon that as well. Dear God and dear Heavenly Father, 
You've blessed us so much spiritually through your son, his word, his church. Father, you've blessed us so much physically as well with our health and with our material blessings. Father, as we give back to you, we pray that we have done so in a cheerful manner, in a willing manner, and in an intentional manner, Father, that uh, those funds may be used to further the gospel in this area. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all please stand once again. We'll sing hymn number 213. 213. <clears throat> he gave me a song. <clears throat> he took my burdens all away. After my birthday, he gave me a song. A wonderful song.
this morning, number 717. 717, victory in Jesus. This time for the Chris. Good morning. So good to see each one of you out this morning. I'm grateful for your presence. We'll be in Mark chapter 8 today. If you've been with us the last several weeks, we have been studying this incredible gospel. Mark, uh, at least for me, it may not have been for you, but at least for me, uh, is, has been the overlooked gospel. I haven't studied, I haven't spent a lot of time in, in this gospel until this year. Uh, and I am astounded um, by, by this great gospel. Today, we are in the pivot point. Mark's going to shift gears today. Uh, over the last several weeks, he's been bringing us this message, this question, really, who is Jesus? And once you answer that question, you have to answer the, the second question that goes along with the first, what are you going to do with them? Because to the Pharisees, who do they think he is? Well, they're not really sure, but they are positive of only one thing. That thing is that he is not from God. He is getting the power to do his miracles from the devil. And so... The leaders of the Jews don't see Jesus very clearly, do they? And then Jesus looks at his disciples, and we found out over the last several weeks that even these 12 men who have spent an incredible amount of time around him, they don't see him very clearly. Today, they're going to begin to see him pretty clearly. That's maybe got an asterisk next to it, though, because they are not where... Their minds ought to be at this point. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 27. And when and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his, his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's what Mark has been asking throughout this entire gospel. Who am I? That's what Jesus has been trying to get you to think about. Remember, Mark wants you to pull on threads. We've talked about that quite a bit, especially recently. Uh, if you've got a, a buttonhole, uh, you've got a button and there's a little piece of string pulling out, uh, popping out of it, what do you do? You pull on it and what happens? It begins to unravel, doesn't it? Um, Mark wants us to do that. Your mom doesn't want you to do that. Mark wants us to do that. He wants us to start pulling on strings. And when we do that, when we spend some time with the text thinking critically about it, answering all the questions we can think of about the text, it starts unfolding in front of us. And Mark, is, it's, necess, it's a necessity with Mark for us to do that, just to spend some time with the text, pulling on threads, trying to unravel the text, watching it as its treasures fall out in front of us. And so this is the first treasure that falls out in front of us this morning. It's Jesus says, who do people say that I am? That's the question Mark has been preparing you for since Mark 1, verse 1. You ought to know the answer to this question by now. The disciples ought to have known the answer to this question by now. But that's not the question he asks, is it? It's who do people say that I am? The crowds. In Mark, the crowds are growing always. Uh, they start off small in the beginning of his gospel, and they grow to a massive number, so much so that he can't even enter into cities anymore to do healings because the people crowd around him. Uh, he's had crowds already of 5,000 and of 4,000 that he has miraculously fed. But remember, those have been out in the wilderness because the crowds have, at this point are too large for him to enter into cities. And so who do people say that I am? 
It's a pretty big question, isn't it? There's a lot of different answers to that question, too. Because Herod Antipas, the ruler of this area, thinks that he's John the Baptist come back to life. You remember Herod's past with John, right? Herod's the one who had John beheaded. And so when a miracle worker comes talking about righteousness, Herod's conscience gets the best of him, doesn't it? And he starts wondering, how bad has he messed up? How bad is his sin? And will he have to be held accountable for it? And of course he will, but he's not right about Jesus' identity here. The rest of the people think, well, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's the forerunner of the Messiah. Because the Messiah is still in the future for most of the Jews. They don't understand exactly that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to get to that in a second. But they think, well, maybe he's someone special. We don't exactly know who yet, but certainly he's from God. No one can do the things that he's doing if he's not from God. His miracles, they're not magic tricks. There's, not, there's no sleight of hand here. These things are legitimate miracles. God has stepped in to how the world normally functions and has changed how the world normally functions. And so you can't deny the miracles. You can't deny the teaching either because he doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees teach. In fact, as the people listen to Jesus' teaching, they are astounded that he speaks with such authority. He teaches differently than anyone else. And so he is certainly, he must be, if your heart is anywhere near good ground, he has got to be from God. The Pharisees don't see that because they don't want to see it. But the crowds maybe don't have enough experience with him, or maybe, I think Mark would probably say it like this, their hearts aren't really where they ought to be either. And so, they don't really see him. Not clearly, at least. They think he's, he's a good person, and maybe he's from God, so maybe he's Elijah. Maybe the people open up this category to even broader. Maybe he's not Elijah, but maybe he's one of the other prophets. You know, he's, he's like Amos or... Or, or Obadiah, or one of the other Old Testament prophets, maybe he's a spokesman for God. Today you'll hear a lot of that kind of thinking as you enter into Christianity in general and, and our culture in general. If you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, you probably think he's a good moral teacher. Most of us have probably encountered someone who thinks that, right? That fault is not possible. He cannot be a good moral teacher. Can't do it. The Bible will not allow it. Logic will not allow him to simply be a good moral teacher. Why not? Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. So either he is God and you ought to submit to him without question, without reservation, as we've seen repeatedly in Mark, people falling down in front of him. You either do that or he is a complete fraud and ought not to be listened to or obeyed at all. He cannot be a good moral teacher if he claimed divinity and he was not right. If he's not God but claim to be God, you shouldn't listen to them. What if somebody today would say that they were divine, that they had miraculous powers? What do you do? You get on your phone and maybe you start calling their doctor. <laughs> they need assistance, right? They haven't backed it up with miracles. 
They haven't backed up what they're saying with teaching. They're making a claim. Should they be followed? Should they be submitted to? Should they be given your life? Should you give your life for them in defense of them? Certainly not, right? He cannot be simply a good moral teacher. It's not possible. Jesus turns next to his disciples and he says, I hear what you're. I hear what you're saying. That's who the crowds think I am. They don't have an awful lot of experience with me, though, do they? You twelve have been with him for years at this point. You twelve have been privy to all of the independent conversations that he has had outside of the crowds. There have been several times when Jesus would do a miracle. And then he would walk away. He would go to a different village or, or the next day. And the disciples would kind of sidle up to him. they say, Jesus, do you remember that thing you did yesterday? What did that mean? And Jesus said, well, this is what it means. And he, and he would explain it for them. The twelve have been privy to that kind of extra knowledge, extra experience with Jesus. So don't you think they ought to know him a little bit better than the crowd does? Makes sense, right? And so Jesus says, I understand the crowd thinks that I'm these things. Elijah or one of the prophets, maybe John the Baptist. But they don't have an awful lot of experience with me. You have an incredible amount of experience with me. Who do you say that I am? It's at this point that Mark pivots. He pivots hard here, right? Because Peter, all of a sudden, Peter, you have to love this man. We talked Wednesday about how he's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He just gets himself in trouble all the time. But he is capable of these incredible revelation jumps in logic. And here he, he puts everything together. I want to read you his words. I want you to read his words. In verse 29, Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You're the Christ. You're the Christ. No, no explanations, no reservations, no, no questioning. It's very simple. In typical Markan language, Mark is the, the, the king of the understatement. Peter has been struggling with this since Jesus called him to be a disciple. This has been the question that is on Peter's mind every minute of every day since Jesus called him to be a disciple. Who is Jesus? What's he doing? These things are incredible. He sees a miracle. He hears some teaching. These things are incredible. Who is Jesus? And finally, finally, he puts it together. You're the Christ. Now, what he means by Christ and what you mean by Christ are not the same things. And Mark's going to spend the rest of the gospel explaining what it really means that Jesus is the Christ. Because what Peter means when he says you're the Christ is... Peter means bring in the white horse, give Jesus a sword. He's, he needs a cape because he's going to go out and he's going to fight the Romans. He's going to kick them out of Israel. He's going to uh, reinstitute the Davidic kingdom. And amazing things are going to happen. And all the majesty that Israel enjoyed under David and Solomon is going to be restored. And money, silver is going to be as common as rocks on the ground like it was during Solomon's day. And that's what Peter means when he says, you're the Christ. Is that what Jesus meant? Of course not. Let's read the rest of what he says here, starting in verse 31. Here's where he's really going to throw 
a monkey wrench into Peter's thinking. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, as he's going through that teaching, Peter has to have his mouth open. This is the most awkward and odd thing Jesus could have possibly said to Peter at this point. After Peter's announcement, proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, Matthew tells us that that Jesus blesses Peter for this proclamation. And after that, you would almost expect Peter to think that Jesus says, Right, I am the Christ. Now, I want you 12 to go out and you gather up the 12 tribes of Israel. Find the best warriors. Find, the, find lots of horses for us. Get, get chain mail and all the best swords. That's got to be, I think, what Peter would expect. That's not what happens, though, is it? Jesus says, the Son of Man, the Christ. You, you said it right, Peter. I'm the Christ. But the Christ must suffer. Must Words in the scripture are so incredibly important. Don't miss a single one of them. That's why you have to spend a lot of time with them. This is why you have to pull every strand you can find. Because the words are important. Every word is inspired. And so he says, the Son of Man must suffer. Never crossed Peter's mind. And in fact, if you keep on reading through this passage, let's just read it, verse 33. Peter can't get this through his head. Remember, he's the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth, and he's about to open and insert again. In verse 33, he says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What did Peter do? Back up a verse or two. Peter takes Jesus aside in verse 32, and he began to rebuke him. Why are you doing that, Peter? Because he cannot get this image of what Jesus is trying to... Jesus is redefining what it means to be the Messiah in Peter's mind. The Messiah, as Jesus defines it, as we would define it, as Scripture defines it, must suffer. It's not not um, an optional thing. It's a necessity. He has to suffer. It's who he is. It's... It's part and parcel. It's called up with being the Messiah. He must suffer. He will be rejected. In Peter's mind, the Messiah would have been widely accepted by the exact people Jesus says are about to reject him, by the chief priests and the elders. He doesn't mention the Pharisees here because the chief priests is not, excuse me, the elders is not, it's a, it's a defined category. It's 70 men made up of, uh, of Pharisees and Sadducees. And so this is a group of leaders uh, known as elders. And, and the Pharisees are part of this group. And so these are people, the leaders of Israel, who would have, should have, wrapped their arms around the Messiah. Welcomed him in. Sat him in front of everyone and said, teach us. In Peter's mind... These people, these leaders of Israel, would have accepted the Messiah, set him on a white horse, and told him to attack the Romans. They would have accepted him, not rejected him. 
Jesus says, the exact same people that you thought were going to accept me, they're actually going to reject me, and I'm going to be killed. Peter's mind has to explode at that moment. You know, have you ever heard something that's so groundbreaking, so somebody was going in a direction, and you thought, oh, I see where you're going with that, and then just the logic twisted on you, and you thought, and you, you end up looking stupid, like your face looks silly. And you're like, what? It hurts so bad, you know, that your, your face showed it. That had to be what Peter's going through right now. I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. It's just not possible. You're the Messiah. We just said so. We got that part hashed out, right? You're the Messiah. You said, yes, I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody, but I'm the Messiah. And now you're saying you're going to be, you're going to die? That doesn't make any sense. Peter strongly rebukes Jesus. Strongly rebukes him. Fervently rebukes him. Peter's a little dumbfounded, a little confused. It's interesting that Jesus rebukes Peter just as harshly as Peter rebuked him. Can you imagine being Peter for just a second? You've had this incredible revelation. You've finally put it all together. You are the Christ. It, it's all clicked. And then just as it's all starting to click, and you're like, yes, I got it. Jesus calls you Satan and tells you to get out of his way. you got to kind of be like, what? what's going on? I don't get it. Scripture doesn't tell us this. But I kind of see Peter laying quiet for the next couple of days, maybe, and just listening, just trying to soak it up. Because he has to get, at this point, that he does, he's missing something. He's not understanding everything the way he ought to understand it. So I wonder if he wasn't just kind of silent for the next several days and just, and just sat and listened to what Jesus was saying, trying to process the, the load, the overload of information he had been given. Listen to what he says here, though, in verse 34. Jesus isn't done blowing up the disciples' minds or ours and calling the crowd to him. So he, he kind of had been talking directly to the disciples here, right? But this time he does the reverse. He, he, he invites the crowd over to join the disciples because this is something everybody needs to hear. And we better pay attention to this too because this is for us just as much as it was to them. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? If anyone would come after me, do you want to follow Christ? Because I mean, that's really the first question we have to answer, isn't it? Because there are a lot of people that Mark points out for us that don't really want to follow. They want what they want. Remember Herod? What did he want? He wanted to be married to Herodias. What did Herodias want? She wanted John to stop talking, to stop talking about their sin. What did Herodias' daughter want? She wanted to please her mom. You, I mean, you can go back through the Gospel of Mark and just find, what did that person want? What did they want? You know what not very many people in Mark wanted? To follow God. <laughs> to follow Jesus. And here, I think Mark's being really clever. He says, if you really want to follow do you want to follow? And on that same topic there, do you want to follow or do you want to lead? 
Do you want to be in charge? Do you want to make the rules? Or are you okay allowing Jesus to make the rules and you just follow and submit? It's hard. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, what do you have to do? Well, first you're going to have to deny yourself. All the things that you want, your priorities in life, the things that, that, that are your, on your bucket list, the things that you want to do. He says, all those things get shoved to the side and you start following Jesus' priorities. Because it doesn't take very long for our priorities and God's priorities to come at a, at a head, does it? It doesn't take them very long before they start opposing each other, does it? And he says, when that happens, before that happens, you've got to choose his priorities over your own. You've got to deny yourself. He says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. I saw a guy walking along the side of the road yesterday carrying a cross. I don't know that he meant it literally. (laughs) I think what Jesus is trying to say here is, if you want to follow me, you better be ready to die. Because in the first century, in the Roman world, the cross was not a cute necklace you wear. It wasn't uh, something that you were proud of. It was a sign of shame and, and punishment, execution. We might say, uh, pick up your executioner's chair, pick up the axe, and, and come after me. It's a sign of death. And he says, all the things that you want, you put them to death, you put them to the side, they no longer matter. Paul would say it like this in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he, he now lives inside of me. He's taken up residence in my body, and I don't do the things I want to do anymore because I don't want to do those things. I do his things. I follow his priorities. Very quickly, let's look at 35. These next couple statements are really important because Jesus is going to define for us the way a disciple acts. What does a disciple do? How do you think? Let's listen to what he says. He's got a couple statements here that are just incredible. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Remember, don't don't skip over this. We've read this verse maybe several hundred times. Don't gloss over this. Spend some time with this. What's he really trying to say here? Can you save your life? Can you eat well enough? Can you sleep well enough? Can you exercise well enough to get out of this life alive? We say there's only two things that are for sure, taxes and death, right? The good news is, Taxes aren't even sure anymore because they get pushed off thanks to COVID. Death's the only thing that's sure now. (laughs) It's not going away, is it? You can't push off that appointment. You cannot lead a healthy enough life to not die. Jesus says, you're so concerned about holding on to the things of this world, you're missing the possibility for the next. You're so concerned about uh, the mansions and the the bank accounts and making ends meet and all all the nice things and you're missing out on what really matters. 
You can't save this life anyhow. Why are you so stringently holding on to it? That's the message of Scripture. This life doesn't matter. You let go of it. You live how you ought to live here. So that what you do here will give you a home in the hereafter. That's the message Jesus is trying to get across to us here. We, we don't hold stringently on to all the things of this world. We're okay letting it go. As long as we can grab hold of what's next. And that's the thing that we never let go of. That's the thing that we hold on stringently to. Verse 36, he says, What does it gain, excuse me, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Like I told you earlier, I'm becoming a really big fan of Mark. Um, Mark is an ironic writer. And if you pay attention to what he's saying here, you'll, you'll begin to get an inkling of, uh, of Mark's uh, writing style. You kind of see Jesus sidle up to the disciples in the crowd. And he says, what would you trade for your soul? It's a question we only think about, isn't it? What would you trade for your soul? Because some of us have made some bad deals. You traded your soul for a house or for a, a family member or for a bank account or for a vacation or for popularity or for fitting in or for fill in the blank. Jesus says, you made a bad deal. You can't trade your soul for anything. You shouldn't trade your soul for anything. We watch all those movies quite a bit about somebody that's made a deal with the devil and they trade their soul for whatever they wanted. Does that ever turn out well for them? Always ends up poorly, doesn't it? That's the message of Scripture. Your soul is not worth nothing you can trade your soul for is a good exchange. And so you live righteously here. Why is this such a big deal to Mark's readers? Remember, he's writing to Romans, not us, the first Romans, who are under persecution. He is writing to a church that is in the hotbed of Roman persecution. Nero during the mid-60s, when this gospel is written, is finding Christians in their houses and is putting them on pikes and lighting them on fire in his gardens. He's throwing them in coliseums to be torn apart by wild animals. He's putting them in the gladiatorial rings to be killed by gladiators for sport. They're hunted, hated. If you're in those Christian shoes... And you hear Jesus say, I am the Messiah. I came to suffer, be rejected, and ultimately be killed. You start identifying with him, don't you? Well, if, it, if it's okay for him to do it, it's not a shame for me to do it. That's okay. And then you start hearing him say, if you, if you lose your life for me, you've actually gained it. Because you weren't holding on to this world's stuff. So to the first century Roman Christian, you've got to be thinking, I win. This is good news. Let them come. They can't hurt me. I've already invested in what's in eternally important. 
And there's nothing they can do to hurt me. They can take my life, but they can't take my soul because I refuse to trade anything for it. Listen to this last thing. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my works in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Who on earth would be ashamed of Jesus, right? Sometimes we might be. At least we act like we are to him. When we choose the world's things over his, when we choose the world's priorities over his, we're telling him that we're ashamed of him. And if we lead our, leave our, lead our lives like that on the day of judgment, the only day that really matters, he'll be ashamed of us. This has not been the typical Easter sermon, has it? <laughs> Following Jesus is difficult. It demands a cost. He's up front about that. There's no hidden fees here. There's no hidden costs. He says, I want you to stop and calculate the cost. Because he wants you to grab a hold of what he's offering and compare it to what you can get. If you do that, eventually you're going to see, A, I'm going to die and all this stuff's going to be given up anyhow. That's Ecclesiastes. Sorry to run the ending for you. Secondly, even if I was able to keep all that stuff, he's going to burn it all up in the end anyhow. I can't hold on to that stuff even if I wanted to. But this, his things, eternity, righteousness, peace with God, I can hold on to that. And those are things that are worth dying for. This is the first time Mark records for us that Jesus says he must suffer, he must die, but he was resurrected. And that's the promise that he offers for us today. But give me just two more minutes because I want to show you where this section really ends because our, our, our Bibles end right here in, in verse 38, but I don't think they ought to. Uh, Mark chapter 9 verse 1 goes with this, this little section we've been talking about. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What's Jesus talking about there? In, in our questions uh, in the bulletin that, uh, that I want you to, to pull those strings on throughout this week, one of the questions is, we're referencing this verse, why is premillennialism not true? Why does this verse destroy that, that thought? Well, very quick uh, thought here. Premillennialism is, premillennialism is this doctrine that says that Jesus couldn't uh, establish his kingdom the first time around. So uh, he was crucified and the Jewish people rejected him. So now he's going to come back and he's going to reign on David's throne for a thousand years. And that's when he's going to set up the kingdom. This verse says that if that's true, there are some 2,000-year-old people walking around today, aren't there? Because he said there's some people standing right here in this crowd, the disciples among them, the crowd around them, that are not going to die until they see the kingdom come with power, right? So what's the kingdom he's talking about? It's not the 1,000-year reign. We can talk more about that later if you want to. Shoot me a message. But what's he talking about here? He's talking about the church. There were some people in that crowd who on the day of Pentecost 
50 days after his death, were standing there when Peter stood up and he said, he convinced them that the man that they crucified, the one that they knew as Jesus, was the Christ. The same proclamation that Peter himself had made. He convinced them that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is God, that he died for them, that he is now wanting them to come to him. Are they willing to submit? And that's our question that we have to struggle with today. Are you willing to submit without question, without reservation? Because the things that you're holding on to aren't worth holding on to. And the things that maybe you, you haven't focused on so much, the eternal things, those are the only things that really matter anyhow. The only things you can really hold on to. This morning, if you haven't made the decision to be baptized into Christ, haven't, ha- haven't had your sins washed away, you need to make that decision this morning. Today is the perfect day to make that happen. To become right with God. You can be resurrected out of the water to walk in newness of life, just like Jesus was resurrected on that Sunday morning. Maybe you've already made that decision and you just need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be, to walk in a manner that's worthy of His calling. If you have any need this morning, won't you come as we stand and sing?
As we close this morning, we'll sing hymn number 547. 547. Rejoice in the Lord. Or rejoice the Lord is King. I'm sorry. Rejoice the Lord is King. Your Lord and King of all. Rejoice Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now. Thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us, this time and opportunity that we've had to come together and to sing praises to you and uh, listen to a message from your word. Father, we do thank you for all the many blessings that you have given us. Father, we thank you for Chris and the lesson that he has given us today that will keep us strong as Christians as we go in this week. Father, we pray for all the ones that are not here that are sick or unable to be with us, that you will continue to be with them and strengthen them and be with the doctors that administer the ones that need their help. Father, we pray that what we've done here today is well-pleasing to you and is according to your word. Father, continue to be with us as we go through this week that we'll be strong Christians and be a shining light wherever we go. Father, we thank you for all you do, and we thank you for Jesus and the love that you have for us, that he died for us, that we could have a hope and hope with a home with you in heaven one day. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.